the birth of Christ here in Matthew chapter 2, which uh, Andrea just read, tells us that the Magi, which uh, we're not exactly sure where they came from, but uh, they came from the east, and so theologians and traditions say they traveled hundreds of miles from the east on an arduous journey to see Christ. And the text tells us after, the, after they followed this star, it rested over the place where Jesus was born. And Matthew writes, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I don't know about you, but that's a lot of happiness going on right there. Rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with his mother and they fell down and they worshipped him. Opening up their treasures, they offered him gifts. Abounding in Faith is the broadcast ministry of Emmanuel Bible Church of Howell, New Jersey. If you are blessed by this message, please subscribe to our podcast or YouTube channel. You can also download our app by searching for IBCNJ in the Google Play Store or the Apple Store. For more information, please visit us at www.ibcnj.org. Our speaker today is Senior Pastor Joe Suazo. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where he is who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw the star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who, is, who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Thank you, Andrea. Andrea Waltering for just sharing the word of God with us this morning. Uh, you may be seated. I love Matthew's record here of the birth of Christ here in Matthew chapter 2, which uh, Andrea just read. tells us that the Magi, which uh, we're not exactly sure where they came from, but uh, they came from the east, and so theologians and traditions say they traveled hundreds of miles from the east on an arduous journey to see Christ. 
And the text tells us after, the, after they followed this star, it rested over the place where Jesus was born. And Matthew writes, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I don't know about you, but that's a lot of happiness going on right there. Rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they fell down, and they worshipped him. Opening up their treasures, they offered him gifts. What a great guide for us this Christmas season, isn't it? Joy in Christ, worship, and a willingness to sacrifice they gave liberally. You know, every Christmas season, and I think we know this, there's a great temptation with each of us. In the busyness of the season, we're tempted to make Jesus small and everything big around us. The decorating, the purchase and exchange of gifts, special Christmas parties, family gatherings, and other things that pack our calendar there's often little joy this, this time of year. I don't know about you, I think there's a little bit of the Grinch in all of us. Add into this the mix of the common struggle with the holiday blues, depression, which often includes a sad memory of a, a lost one who's close to us or a broken home. It's no wonder that one of the greatest mantras I hear this season is, I can't wait till it's all over with. What a sad commentary on the human heart that we can become so full of other things that the very reason for this season, which is to help us to worship the one greater than the things that we're fretting about, uh, takes over our hearts. Here's what I want to help us out with this morning as we come to the last week before we celebrate Christmas. Let us make Jesus big and everything else small in relationship to who he is. That's the challenge. Let us find a way to worship him this season for who he is and say in our hearts with the Magi, who were in his presence 2,000 years ago, we rejoice exceedingly with great joy. We worship him. We offer him our hearts and our lives in the midst of the busyness of the season. During the next few weeks, we're going to do just a two-part series on, on what Christmas truly is, which is the incarnation of Christ. Uh, this is a fancy theological way of saying that God became man. For until we see the enormity of who Christ is, our temptation will be to make everything big and Jesus small. And it's not just Christmas, but that's all of life. So it's good this time of year to pause and take stock and to remember who this babe was in this crib 2,000 years ago, who he is from all of eternity. So 
I'm going to meditate this morning. We're going to bring a meditation in from John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And we're going to look at basically two truths in our text this morning. The first is Jesus is God incarnate. And then the second that we're going to look at is he became man. Simple. Simple two-part sermon, right? In John, we read this, John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And then going down to verse 14. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Father, as we just unpack these few verses. Speak to our hearts. That we may learn to make Jesus big. And everything that causes us wary and consternation small. That our hearts may be buoyed this Christmas by the real reason for the season. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let's look at Jesus as God Almighty. And there's five qualities here in the text I want us to look at in verses 1 through 5. The first is this, that Jesus is eternal the fount of all reality. When John begins his gospel in John 1.1 with the simple phrase, in the beginning, he's not really talking about the beginning of Christ's life here on earth. He's talking about the beginning before time even began. He's trying to help us to see that Jesus is God because he is before time itself. You know, one of the first credentials that establishes Jesus as God is his internality. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, John also quotes Jesus, who proclaimed himself as the Alpha and the Omega. John Piper, in his book, Seeing and Savoring Jesus, wrote that there's no before alpha in the alphabet. He's the absolute reality before anything else. And he goes on and says this, Christ's eternal nature establishes Jesus as God and the fount of all reality. To say that Jesus is the fount of all reality means that everything we see, everything we know, and our very souls find their origin in him. Later on in chapter 8, John records a conversation that Jesus had with a group of religious leaders who accused him, crazy enough, as being a child of the devil. They didn't like what he was saying. Jesus told them that before the existence of Israel, before even the father of Israel, Abraham, I am. I am. Only one other place 
in the Bible is this phrase used, I am, is when God describes himself to Moses in Exodus. My little daughter, Danielle, well, it's not so little anymore, she's 28, but when she was four years old, and I've shared this before because it was such a, a great memory for me, she's struggling as we go through our evening devotions and everything, she's trying to understand the nature of God. And she goes, where did God come from, Daddy? I said, well, he didn't come from anywhere. He always is. And I could see her little face just screw up like with that thought. She just, just couldn't even grasp it because our minds understand that everything has a first cause. But what makes Christ God is he's without cause. He always is. Yesterday, today, and forever. He is God. In the beginning, John begins. I think we have to get that settled deeply in our hearts because unless we do, we are not going to be worshiping him in spirit and truth. A second quality we see in John 1 is that he is the word, the word. And I say the fount of all reason. John 1.1, we read that John was not only again in the beginning, but he is the word of God. Now the word used here in the original Greek language is logos. Many of us know that. New Testament was written in the language of Koinea Greek. It was the uh, common language, trade language of the time. Uh, it began really when Alexander the Great in the 4th century BC conquered the known world of that time. And, and Koine Greek was really the trade legal language of that area for 10 centuries. That's how much influence it had. When the Apostle John used the word logos to describe Jesus, he denotes the highest form of of wisdom and reason that is above all else. There really isn't a clear equivalent in the English language. The famous Greek philosopher used it, Plato, Lagos, to describe the highest form of wisdom and reason and principle. Now here's John is making a declaration to the world that Jesus himself is the seat of all wisdom and reason and light and life. It's the Lagos that gives us revelation and direction. When we look at the centuries of a recorded history, we see on its pages human tragedy, famine, natural disaster, catastrophe, genocide, war, rumors of war, suffering and misery. In the midst of it, we need a word. Right? We're looking for a word. Without getting too political here, in the palette of human history, men are trying to, to find hope all the time, and we often place it at the feet of politicians or a doctor or a scientist, and we listen to their bold claims whose words are often discovered fallible and wrong. With, I think all of us, regardless of our point of view, suffered in many ways from the COVID epidemic. I know our church world was turned upside down by it. 
During that time, many words and directives came from the CDC, the Center of Disease Control, perhaps well-meaning. They guided state and local governments to shut down businesses, schools, churches. From mask mandates to vaccinations to how hospitals and doctors' offices run, our world was changed and turned upside down. Now, almost a year later that, that the, this pandemic has subsided, what they discover statistically with the countries that didn't follow those guidelines, they suffered even less than those who did. Now, I'm not condemning the CDC. I think they were well-meaning, well-intentioned, but here's the point. Words change the direction of our lives. Human wisdom is fallible. But here, the Apostle John is saying that Jesus, the Word, is without fallibility. He's the logos, the highest form of reason and purity in all ways. He's the fount of true wisdom itself. So we see that he's eternal. He's the seat of all reason. Thirdly, we see here in John 1, 3, that he's the creator. Our brother, Pastor Mike Hurd, alluded to it in his brief devotional here, which I love your little devotionals during our time, interlude in worship. John 1, 3, we read that all things were made through him, and without him not anything made that was made. Uh, in logic, that's called an all-encompassing statement, meaning that anything you know, see, feel, touch, hear, or experience ultimately had its source in the Creator God, and Christ himself is Creator. Apostle Paul in Colossians 1, 15, 16, framed out this truth about Jesus this way as creator. He is the image of the invisible God, for by him all things were made in the heavens and the earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I love the way Proverbs chapter 8 Verses 22 through 36 frames out this truth about the logos or wisdom that was present at creation. When God established the heavens, I was there. When he made the skies above and marked out the foundations of the earth, I was beside him. Then the writer of Proverbs challenges, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Yeah, I often will challenge a non-believer or a cynic about the existence of God with three basic questions. Three basic questions. The first, why are you here? I mean, the first one is, where did you come from? That's my first one. Where did you come from? Ultimately, we understand there had to be a beginning uh, without God. Of course, the problem with uh, materialism, the idea that Things began with a big bang and from that point forward evolved into the order and the design we see around us, which there are many reasons to disbelieve this idea. I'm not going to get into them today, but the main reason is 
where did the stuff for the Big Bang come from? And, and, and they put themselves in a place of logical absurdity because everything we know has to have a cause. But they're so intent, the atheistic mind, on holding on to this, they will then say, well, then material things had to be eternal in and of themselves, which, of course, defies our logic about the world around us. So the first question, where did you come from? The second question is, why are you here? This is in uh, philosophy called a metaphysical question. Why? Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? Again, without God, we struggle to answer this question. Am I here to serve myself and experience pleasure? Am I here for my family to contribute to society, enjoy life? All those might be right in their proper place. But if my heart doesn't go deeper than that, a meaningless about life is there resident in my soul. And as the years pass by, a thinking, reasoning purpose says, not enough. My experiences in life are not enough. My relationships in life are not enough. I need to know what is the source of it all. By him, all things were created. Not one thing was made without him. And then the final question I often ask the cynic is, where are you going? Where are you going? Now, people like to be cheeky while I'm just going six feet under, but I'll tell you, I've sat at the bedside of many dying people in my ministry. It's not sufficient. Even uh, one of the writers of the uh, manifesto, Humanist Manifesto, Aldous Huxley, who was a animate atheist on his deathbed, confessed it wasn't sufficient, wasn't enough. Where am I going? This is a question about eternal life, heaven. Is there life beyond this life? Our souls long for it. Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity in the hearts of man. And the good news of the gospel, and this is why we gather, this is why we celebrate, this is why there should be exceeding joy in our hearts about Christmas Day, is that Jesus Christ, who is God at the beginning of time, the fount of all wisdom, the creator, came to us that we may have eternal life. And that brings us to a fourth truth about Christ. Jesus is the light and the fount of light. Look at verse 4 if you have your Bibles open. In him was life. And that life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness. And I love it. The darkness has not overcome it. John now gets to the heart of the matter here. And one of the main intents for writing this gospel, Jesus is life itself in the light in a darkened world. Jesus is the one who sustains life. Through him all things were created. In Colossians, it says that he holds all things together. Through him, Jesus, we find light and eternal life. Hebrews chapter 1, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of who God is, upholding the universe by the word of his power. I'm amazed at the tremendous amount of money 
that the U.S. government has poured into discovering life beyond Earth. When you read between the lines of what various scientists, what's driving some of the scientists out of NASA and various projects that have been funded by the U.S. government, there's a longing to know that there's, is there anyone out there? Google News just put out an article and the government just released an um, article news bit and says if all their research and all that they've done, all the billions of dollars, the answer so far is no. Not a surprise to us. There have been probes that have gone to Mars, moon, to the moon, Jupiter, the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. Beyond In the Mojave Desert in California, NASA has spent hundreds of millions of dollars on what is called the Gold Stone Deep Space Communication Complex. Say that real quick. Surprised I got it right. It's a satellite, satellite dishes that seek to, to hear a sound from outer space, from the far reaches of the universe. What have they discovered? Nothing. Nothing. No life out there. But if you were to browse the internet and simply type in conspiracy and UFO and NASA, Whoa, what a plethora of articles you would find. They must be hiding something from us, right? How ridiculous. But people are so earnest to know that there's something out there. Well, there is. It's called God Almighty. In Him, Jesus was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. He's eternal. He's the word, reason. He's the creator. He's life. And this final thing that we're going to look at in terms of Jesus as God is in verse 14. Jesus is begotten, not made. It's a final credential here that John's trying to help us understand Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father. The King James Version translates this as the only begotten. It's a unique word in the Greek New Testament. It's found in 3.16, God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten. And it comes from monogeus, which, which has the idea of only one of a kind, unique in class or kind. Here are the apostles putting us on notice. Jesus is not like any other man. He's unique in class. He's the only begotten. He's trying to help us understand that the claims that that Christ is making that through him is life, and that life is the light of men, is credible and reliable. I was trying to find an illustration to help us out here. The most valuable diamond in the world. I typed that in. Just curious. What is it? Where is it? Most valuable diamond, 105 carat, flawless diamond called the Kahanur diamond. Where does it sit? on top of the crown, the Queen's crown of England. 
Isn't that interesting? The last time it was seen is when the Queen Mother passed years ago. It originally came from India. If you were to ask any diamond enthusiast, what is the most unique diamond in the world? It would be the Kahanur. Incomparable, flawless, 105 carats. You can't even put a price on this thing. Over the centuries, there's been so many false claims and false religions and cults that have claimed that Jesus is just a man. Great man, but just a man. You have Jehovah Witnesses, Mormon Church, that claim Jesus is simply a creation of God. Islam teaches that Jesus is not God, but just a prophet. Hinduism believes that he's one of many incarnations. Buddhism would teach that he's a great master teacher, but just a man. Out of every one of these places, it's a distortion and a false teaching of who Christ is. In the 4th century, the church entered a crisis about this question. And there was a debate in the ancient church led by an elder in Egypt called Arius. Arius taught that Jesus Christ was created, not the creator. And so a group of pastors gathered together. He was eventually excommunicated for his view about Christ. But out of this debate came the Nicene Creed. Now, many of us have grown up in churches where the Nicene Creed was shared and repeated each week. How important it is. We're not going to do that this morning, but I want us to just hear a portion of this Nicene Creed, familiar to so many of us. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. Just in case the church gets confused on this question, this is the standard, this is the gold standard of who Christ is. And when people stray from that, they're really straying from good, sound doctrine. When Paul is trying to help Timothy, who is pastoring Ephesus, probably Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy, he says, I charge you, in the presence of God, in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, preach the word in season and out of season. He says, because a time is coming when people will no longer endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions or fancies. Isn't that the kind of world we live in? But through it all, Jesus breaks forth as the light of the world. And what does John say? The darkness has not overcome it. Amen. I mean, that's Christmas right there. Jesus is God. But he's not just God. He became man. And we're going to look at this this week and next week on Christmas Day. But there's three qualities I want us to see in our text the first is this, that Jesus, the Word, the Word of God, eternal, became flesh. Now here John 
is debunking what is called Gnosticism. That was a common teaching of the first century. It was a heresy which is derived from the word gnosis, which means knowledge. It was a philosophy that taught that matter in and of itself was evil, and for man to stay pure, he would have to somehow physically remain untainted by the, the things of this world. Gnosticism reasoned that because Jesus was sin-free, he really didn't have a physical body, but was only spirit. Not so, says John. He became flesh. Throughout the gospel, we find Jesus drinking, eating, weary, weeping, touching, crying out in pain. He became flesh. In John's first letter to the churches, he spends even more time debunking this teaching that was so common in the first century. He wrote that he and the disciples had heard Jesus, seen Jesus, touched Jesus. He had a physical body. He was fully God and fully man. Listen to how the apostle begins that letter. That which was from the beginning. Sound familiar? Just like his gospel. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of life, that which we have seen and heard before, we declare to you. One of the key characteristics of Christ is his sinlessness. He took on human flesh, but unlike all of us who are descends from Adam, he becomes the first man who's absolutely, perfectly righteous, sin-free. Listen to how 2 Corinthians frames this out. He who knew no sin became sin or took on flesh so that we might become the righteousness of God. Beautiful truth. But John continues, he says this, if the first statement was really an argument for the Greco world, here he has something very unique for the Jewish world at that time. He says, Jesus dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. The word here to dwell in verse 14 from the original language, many of you have heard this before, literally means to tabernacle. Now while Jesus becoming flesh debunked a Greek heresy of Gnosticism, here we find a unique message. The tabernacle is an allusion to the tabernacle that Moses was commanded to build in the wilderness by which the nation of Israel can find atonement for sin. So Christ himself becomes the atoning sacrifice for sin. He tabernacled amongst us. And ultimately know that when he was born as a babe, and all of our hearts are captured by that imagery of a, a mother and a baby and a child, but he grew up and would ultimately give his life for us on a cross. He tabernacled amongst us. You know, it's interesting about the tabernacle. There's three things just I was thinking about. First, the glory of the tabernacle wasn't easily seen. If you go back to the instructions of Exodus, on the outside was covered with crude animal skins. But on the inside was full of gold and royal tapestry. Second thing about the tabernacle, as we shared, it's where sin was atoned for. 
priests of Israel would offer up the shed blood of animals in the holy place on a regular basis. But once a year, the high priest would go into the holy of holies to offer a sacrifice for the atonement of Israel. And then finally, the tabernacle was a place of God's presence. The inner chamber, the holy of holies, is where God himself dwelt with the nation of Israel. And now, Jesus dwelt amongst us. When he be left the heavenly place to become flesh, emptying himself of glory as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, it gives us a perfect picture of God's love and what he's willing to do for us. The world struggles with this. The world struggles to see his majesty and his humanity. Still struggles to understand his atoning sacrifice for sin and still struggles to see him as Almighty God. So Jesus is man. He, he became flesh. The Word became flesh. He tabernacled amongst us. Last truth this morning. His glory was seen by men. That's what he says in John 14, 114. We've seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now, when the Apostle shares we have seen his glory... In part, he's testifying to the miracles and power of God that they had witnessed disciples. In John's Gospel, which is very unique the way it's framed out, it's framed out with the number seven. There's these seven statements about Christ. I am the way, you know, the truth of life is one of them. I am the bread of life. I am the door or the gate of the sheep. There's seven of these. But there's also seven miracles laid out. He turned water into wine. Healed a boy who was dying. He healed an invalid who was disabled from birth. He fed the 5,000 with two fish and five loaves. He walked on water. He gave sight to the blind and raised Lazarus from the dead. We have seen his glory. Full of grace and truth. In other words, the fullest possible manifestation of God was revealed amongst men and Jesus lacked nothing. To say, you're full of something, we use that word derogatory way. He's full of, that's not Christ. Full of truth, grace, perfection. So in closing, I want us to remind ourselves as we enter into this week, because this is a charge, for all of us, me as well, it's a busy week. Three truths for this Christmas season. First, let us recognize and acknowledge that Jesus is God. Praise Him. Secondly, I want us to see that He's fully man. Only begotten, full of grace and truth. Lagos, but also man. It's important that we understand that Jesus suffered the weaknesses of the flesh just like us. He was acquainted with grief. He was suffered, Scripture teaches us. He can sympathize with every one of our weaknesses, yet without sin. And then finally, let us remember to behold His glory, the one and only. This is not just some faraway spiritual truth. When we come into relation with Jesus, we should be able to say with John, we have seen his glory. This babe 
that came 2,000 years ago died on a cross that you and I may have forgiveness and new life. That's why we gather. New life. world is not an easy place to live. Have you noticed? Isn't it great to know that we have truths that transcend and lift us up above it all? I'll just finish with this last verse. I love the way Isaiah helps us here. For those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with the wings of eagles. They'll run, not grow weary, and walk and not be faint. Father, thank you for the beauty of Scripture and how you're so good, Lord, to leave us direction and life and the Word all expressed perfectly through Christ our Savior. May we enter this week with a sense of joy as the Magi we were hearing about earlier who rejoiced exceedingly with great joy when they saw the star rest over the place of Christ's birth. Help us, Lord, to experience that joy this Christmas season, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the previous message. We pray that you were blessed by it. For more information, please visit us at www.ibcnj.org.